MSW Media. Thanks to Athletic Greens for supporting the Daily Beans. Athletic Greens is going to give you a free one-year supply of immune-supporting vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. Just go to athleticgreens.com slash dailybeans to take ownership over your health and pick up the ultimate daily nutritional insurance. Hello and welcome to the Daily Beans for Friday, October 7th, 2022. Today, Dank Brandon announces that he wants to decriminalize cannabis. The New York Times reports the Department of Justice doesn't believe Donald has returned all the documents he took. A proud boy becomes the first person to plead guilty to seditious conspiracy for his participation in the insurrection. Jeffrey Clark made an appearance at his bar disciplinary hearing Thursday. And Oathkeeper Stuart Rhodes had a Secret Service contact, according to testimony in court today. I'm your host, Allison Gill. Hi, everyone. As we know, Dana's traveling this weekend. She'll be back Tuesday morning. And uh, we had some late breaking news that uh, I was able to get into the show today from the New York Times about documents. <laughs> the Department of Justice feels like Trump hasn't returned them all, which is kind of surprising, but also not. I'll get into that a little bit. And later in the show, I'm going to be interviewing the author of the book, Hashtag AltGov. That's Amanda Sturgill. It's a really fascinating conversation about all those alt-government accounts that were on Twitter after the Trump administration, after Trump took office. And uh, don't forget, Monday, we're going to have almost an hour-long interview with Michael Cohen. He's the host of the Mea Culpa podcast and Trump's former fixer and lawyer who, uh, you know, pled guilty and spent time in prison for a conspiracy with individual one who never faced charges. So we have a lot of news to get to today. Let's hit the hot notes. Hot notes. So many major breaking stories today. It's hard to know where to start, so I'm going to start with Dank Brandon. Here's a statement from the White House. As I often said during my campaign for president, no one should be in jail just for using or possessing marijuana. Sending people to prison for possessing marijuana has upended too many lives and incarcerated people for conduct that many states no longer prohibit. Criminal records for marijuana possessions have also imposed needless barriers to employment, housing, and educational opportunities. And while white and black and brown people use marijuana at similar rates, Black and brown people have been arrested, prosecuted, and convicted at disproportionate rates. Today, I am announcing three steps that I'm taking to end this failed approach. First, I'm announcing a pardon for all prior federal offense of simple possession of marijuana. I have directed the Attorney General to develop an administrative process for the issuance of certificates of pardon to eligible individuals. There are thousands of people who have been prior federal convicts for marijuana possession who may be denied employment, housing, or educational opportunities as a result. My action will help relieve the collateral consequences arising from these convictions. Second, I am urging all governors to do the same with regard to state offenses. Just as no one should be in federal prison solely due to the possession of marijuana, no one should be in a local jail or state prison for that reason either. Third, I am asking the Secretary of Health and Human Services and the Attorney General to initiate the administrative process to review expeditiously how marijuana is scheduled under federal law. Federal law currently classifies marijuana in Schedule 1 of the Controlled Substances Act, the classification meant for the most dangerous substances. This is the same schedule as for heroin and LSD and even higher than the classification of fentanyl and higher than methamphetamine, the drugs that are driving our overdose epidemic. Finally, 
Even as federal and state regulation of marijuana changes, important limitations on trafficking, marketing, and underage sales should stay in place. Too many lives have been upended because of our failed approach to marijuana. It's time that we right these wrongs. Fucking amazing, right? I was a big pot smoker ever, but I, I remember writing a paper in high school about the racist criminalization of weed and how autocrats were targeting black and brown communities to suppress the vote. The paper was called Just Say No, K-N-O-W, wink, wink. My Republican teacher gave me a C. I think my main source was Normal, the National Organization for the Reform of Marijuana Laws, and it was at the height of Nancy Reagan's Just Say No campaign. I never thought I would see this day in my lifetime. That's for fucking sure. I hope the Secretary of Health and Human Services and the Attorney General remove it from Schedule 1 ahead of the election. That would be outstanding. But removing it, you know, regardless of politics is a very important and just honestly an incredible step. I never thought I would see it. Next up from The Times, a top Justice Department official told former President Trump's lawyers in recent weeks that the department believes he has not returned all the documents he took when he left the White House. That's according to two people briefed on the matter. The outreach from the official Jay Bratt, that's the head of espionage and counterintelligence, is the most concrete indication yet that investigators remain skeptical that Trump has been fully cooperative in their efforts to recover documents that the former president was supposed to have turned over to the National Archives. Now, It's not clear what steps the Justice Department might take to retrieve any material it thinks Trump still holds. And it's also not known whether the Justice Department has gathered new evidence that Trump has held on to government material, even after the court authorized search. Although I can't imagine Jay Bratt, the head of counterintelligence, would go to the Trump lawyers and say that they think that Trump still has documents just sort of on a hunch. (laughs) I think they must have evidence, you know, since the court authorized search in August. Now, for 18 months of previous efforts by the federal government that exist, you know, to convince the former president to return what he had taken when he left office, 18 months. Of course, the FBI didn't know about it. DOJ wasn't informed until this year, and they didn't get their hands on those 15 boxes recovered in January until May. And then they immediately issued a subpoena, got some of it back, and then went down in August the next month, you know, about a month after that to to execute the search warrant. The outreach from the department prompted a rift among Trump's lawyers about how to respond, with one camp counseling a cooperative approach that would include bringing in an outside firm to conduct a further search for documents, and another advising Mr. Trump to maintain a more combative posture. The more combative camp won out. But the Justice Department has previously signaled doubts that Trump has turned everything over in his possession. That's not really new. Shortly after the search in August, it was revealed that investigators found dozens of empty folders, we know, marked top secret and classified. The empty folders were found during that search with 40 other empty folders that said they contained sensitive documents that should be returned to staff, secretary, slash military aid. And that's according to a court filing. Agents found the empty folders along with seven documents marked as top secret in Trump's office. Investigators also found 11 more marked top secret in a storage room. The department has also signaled in court filings that it has continued to try to determine whether more government materials remain unaccounted for. We know that in the September court filing, the DOJ complained that the judge's decision to stop the DOJ from having access to the classified documents, which has been reversed partially by a federal appeals court, would limit their ability to determine whether documents were missing. And they and they referenced the 43 empty folders. Justice Department officials and representatives for Trump have held a number of discussions in recent weeks, 
after the call from Jay Bratt, who has led the Justice Department's investigation into Trump's handling of the documents, Trump initially agreed to go along with the advice of one of his lawyers, Chris Kyes, the $3 million benchwarmer, who suggested hiring a forensic firm to search for additional documents. But other lawyers in Trump's circle who have argued for taking a more adversarial posture, that's going to be Trusty and Corcoran and, you know, who's the other one? that Mostly Trusty and Corcoran. Epstein, right? No one likes him. They disagreed with Mr. Kaiser's approach. They talked to Trump and they talked him out of the idea and have encouraged him to maintain an aggressive stance toward the authorities. Now, I have to ask, at what point, at what point does national security outweigh the unwritten Department of Justice rule that they won't take overt investigatory steps within 60 days of an election? He's not a candidate. He is the leader of a party. But, I mean, at what point is it, is it okay to go ahead and search the rest of his houses and properties, you know, and golf clubs. I don't understand. This is, this is one I, I can't understand why they haven't executed more search warrants. And this next story, a lieutenant of longtime former Proud Boys chairman Henry Enrique Tario became the first member of the group to plead guilty to seditious conspiracy. That uh, deepening the government's case against the organization accused of mobilizing violence to prevent the inauguration of Joe Biden or to, you know, prevent actually the counting of the of the votes on January 6th. Jeremy Bertino, 43, of Belmont, North Carolina, agreed to cooperate with the Justice Department against Tario and four other Proud Boys leaders with ties to influential Donald Trump supporters Roger Stone and Alex Jones. The Proud Boys defendants are set to face trial in December on charges, including plotting to oppose by force the presidential transition, culminating in the attack on the Capitol. At a hearing before U.S. District Judge Timothy Kelly in Washington, Bertino pled guilty to that count and one count of illegal possession of firearms. This is punishable. Now the sentencing guidelines are 51 to 63 months in prison, and that includes the cooperation and accepting responsibility. But uh, I feel like that's a little light personally. But he is the first to plead guilty to seditious conspiracy. Now, in a sign of the sensitivity and potential importance of Bertino's testimony, prosecutors agreed that in exchange for substantial cooperation, they could seek leniency at sentencing and enter Bertino into a Justice Department witness protection program. Witness protection. Yeah, that's how dangerous these groups are. In plea papers, Bertino said Proud Boys leaders agreed that the election had been stolen, that the purpose of traveling to D.C. on January 6th was to stop the certification of the Electoral College vote, and that the Ministry of Self-Defense, MOSD group leaders, were willing to do whatever it would take, including using force against police and others to achieve that objective. He admitted that at least two days earlier, he received an encrypted chat message indicating that members of the Proud Boys leadership group who called themselves the MOSD, quote, believed the storming of the Capitol would achieve the group's goal and would require using violence. Bertino's testimony could implicate Tario. We know uh, Bertino was, his home was searched the same day Tario was arrested last March. Tario, as we know, is a former aide to Roger Stone and, and co-defendant Joe Biggs, a former employee of Jones's online Infowars show. Stone and Jones are two prominent right-wing figures who promoted Trump's big lie, we know. Roger Stone remained in contact with Trump at Mar-a-Lago in Florida and in Washington in the weeks leading up to January 6th, coordinated post-election protests and privately strategized with figures such as 
the former National Security Advisor Mike Flynn and Stop the Steal organizer Ali Alexander. Stone also communicated via encrypted texts after the 2020 election with Tario as well as Rhodes, the founder and leader of the Oath Keepers, accused of playing an outsized role in planning for and organizing violence at the Capitol. Rhodes was on trial. He's on trial right now on seditious conspiracy charges in the same courthouse where Bertino pleaded. Bertino was a regional leader in charge of recruiting handpicked members for the MOSD. He said the group was trying on December 30th, 2020, to prepare for the expected arrest of Tario for burning a Black Lives Matter flag at an earlier pro-Trump rally in Washington, speculating that it might cause Proud Boys and others gathering for January 6th to quote-unquote riot. Again, I don't understand the sentencing guidelines. 51 to 63 months. I mean, I understand them. I got a a great breakdown on Twitter as to why they went that way, but I I don't know that I agree. And in Oath Keepers news, as we talked about, speaking of uh, Stuart Rhodes, he indicated in the months before the January 6th attack on the Capitol that he was in contact with a member of the Secret Service. That's according to a former member of the far-right organization who testified during the trial today, Thursday. Former Oath Keepers member John Zimmerman testified that Oath Keepers founder Stuart Rhodes told him he had a contact in the Secret Service, and Zimmerman said he heard Rhodes talking with someone he believed to be a member of the Secret Service in September 2020, a bit over three months before January 6th. The reported call came ahead of a Trump rally in North Carolina, where Zimmerman was an Oath Keepers county leader before he left the organization. Rhodes got on the phone with the unknown individual to ask about parameters that the Oath Keepers could operate under during the rally. Zimmerman said, Oath Keepers attended the rally to escort attendees from the rally location to their vehicles. Now, quote, from the question Stewart, Mr. Rhodes, was asking, it sounded like it could have been a Secret Service agent. That's what Zimmerman said. NBC News has reached out to the Secret Service for comment. They haven't gotten back. Another member of the Oath Keepers, one of three who pled guilty to seditious conspiracy, has told the court that Rhodes tried to get in touch with Trump through an intermediary on the night of January 6th after the Capitol attack. Now, it's unclear who was on the other end of that January 6th phone call. Another member of the Oath Keepers, Kelly Sorrell, was in touch with the former White House aide, Andrew Giuliani, Rudy's kid, in November 2020. Zimmerman recalled going to an Oath Keepers meeting when they were trying to get a state chapter relaunched, and he became frustrated with the lack of organization. He ended up leading a county chapter of the Oath Keepers and traveling to the D.C. area with members of the organization for the Million MAGA March in November following Trump's election loss. Zimmerman testified Thursday in the trial of Rhodes and four other Oath Keepers charged with seditious conspiracy, including Kelly Meggs, Kenneth Harrelson, Jessica Watkins, and Thomas Caldwell. The trial, which is the Justice Department's biggest challenge to date, is supposed to last about five or six weeks. Rhodes frequently cited the Insurrection Act, according to evidence presented by prosecutors, and said in a call on November 2020 that a quick reaction force with weapons set up outside of D.C. for the November rally would only go into D.C. if Trump invoked the act to call militias to his aid. Under an 1807 law that's supposed to help presidents suppress civil disorder, insurrection, or rebellion. Zimmerman said he didn't think Rhodes was necessarily in touch with Trump, But he did think Rhodes had a Secret Service connection, and that's how the Oath Keepers might find out that Trump invoked the Insurrection Act. That's interesting. Prosecutors have said that Rhodes' reference to the Insurrection Act in connection with January 6th were nothing more than cover for the Oath Keepers' plot. Another former Oath Keeper, Michael Adams, testified on Thursday afternoon that he decided to leave the Oath Keepers in December 2020 after the group published an open letter to Trump calling upon him to invoke the Insurrection Act. 
One of those letters said the Oath Keepers would have mission-critical gear stowed nearby, just outside of D.C., and we'll answer the call right then and there if you call us, unquote. Zimmerman testified at the trial that he and other members of the Oath Keepers from North Carolina had a falling out with the national chapter as a result of the November trip. Quote, he, Rhodes, thought that we should dress up as elderly people or be like a single parent pushing a baby carriage with some weapons in the baby carriage, Zimmerman said. That was describing one of Rhodes' ideas, which Rhodes thought would entice Antifa or BLM members to attack the Oath Keepers so they could give them a beat down and potentially give Trump a reason to invoke the Insurrection Act. Quote, if we're going to trick people into attacking us so we can give them a beatdown, that's not what we do, Zimmerman said. Yeah, Zimmerman, yes it is. <laughs> Zimmerman said it was probably about 60% accurate that Rhodes talks a big game but never follows up on it. A defense attorney asked Zimmerman if he hated Rhodes. And he said, no, I love Stuart Rhodes. I love Jessica. I love all of them. I don't like what they did. And I have a little schadenfreude for you. Schadenfreude. Former Justice Department lawyer who became a close ally to Donald Trump in his effort to overthrow the 2020 election is fighting to save his law license and stave off other professional discipline from the Washington, D.C. bar. Jeffrey Clark appeared for a lengthy proceeding Thursday that is a prelude to a disciplinary hearing on claims he violated legal ethics in his persistent efforts to undercut the legitimacy of the election. The heart of the issue did Clark merely offer up unwise suggestions to his superiors, hardly the basis for disciplinary action, or did his persistence in the face of lack of evidence of fraud render his conduct so inappropriate that he should be punished? Phil Fox, chief of the D.C. Bar Office of Disciplinary Counsel, which brought the complaint against Clark earlier this year, agreed that it's generally not a disciplinary violation to make stupid suggestions. But Fox said Clark went further by repeatedly seeking to get the Justice Department to send a letter of warning of significant signs of fraud and urging state legislatures to reconvene and consider appointing new electors. Quote, he came back and used coercive methods or means to attempt to get the letter sent, even though he had no additional information. That's what Fox said during a video conference session. Harry McDougald, an attorney for Clark, pushed back, quote, they're saying it's okay to make a suggestion, but it's not okay to persist in a suggestion. Okay, McDougal. Merrill Hirsch, a veteran D.C. lawyer who chairs the three-member panel to consider the bar complaint, emphasized that this is the key question he is considering as he begins to lay out the process for deciding Clark's professional fate. Clark has been the subject of a torrent of investigations since Donald left office. His home was raided in June by FBI agents as part of an investigation in efforts to overturn the results. And he's also been a figure of significant interest in the January 6th Select Committee. He pled the fifth when he appeared for a select committee deposition earlier this year. But lawyers involved in Trump's 2020 efforts face additional avenues of accountability, professional consequences. Several, like Sidney Powell, have been sanctioned for pursuing baseless litigation against the election results in some states. Rudy Giuliani has similarly faced bar proceedings in New York and D.C., all still ongoing. An investigative office of the D.C. Bar Association has lodged a complaint accusing Clark of dishonesty and attempting to interfere with an administration of justice, both sanctionable offenses for a practicing attorney. If the charges are upheld, he faces a range of punishment from reprimand to the loss of his law license. The bar proceedings are typically protracted affairs. A three-member committee overseen by Hirsch will make an initial recommendation after gathering facts. Those recommendations will go to the D.C. Bar's Board of Professional Responsibility, which then relays its own final determination to the D.C. Court of Appeals, which has the authority to impose discipline, ranging from reprimand to disbarment. 
Hirsch said he's made no initial determinations about Clark's culpability and is interested in the line between bad legal advice and sanctionable misconduct. Hmm. Anyway, that's what's going on in the world today. Lots of breaking news. I'll be right back with author Amanda Sturgill. We're going to talk about her book, Hashtag AltGov. Stay with us. After these messages, we'll be right back. Hey, everyone. I love falling asleep and staying asleep and waking up on my Helix mattress. Helix Sleep is a premium mattress brand that provides tailored mattresses based on your unique sleep preferences. The Helix lineup has 14 unique mattresses, including a collection of luxury models, a mattress for big and tall sleepers, even a mattress made just for kids. And your personalized mattress is shipped straight to your door free of charge. It's super easy to find which Helix mattress works best for you by taking their online two-minute sleep quiz at helixsleep.com slash dailybeans. I was matched with the Helix Midnight because I'm a side sleeper and I like a medium firm bed. It's the best mattress I've ever owned, hands down. Helix knows there's no better way to test out a new mattress than by sleeping on it in your own home. So they offer a 100-night risk-free trial. And if you decide it's not the best fit, you're welcome to return it for a full refund. They'll even come and pick it up. Plus, Helix mattresses are American-made, and they come with a 10- or 15-year warranty, depending on the model. And if you don't want to take my word for it, you don't have to, because Helix was awarded number one best overall mattress pick by GQ and Wired Magazine. It's even recommended by uh, doctors of sleep medicine and chiropractors as a go-to solution for improving your sleep. And right now, Helix is offering up to $200 off all mattress orders, plus two free pillows. Just head to helixsleep.com slash dailybeans. That's H-E-L-I-X sleep.com slash dailybeans. With Helix, better sleep starts now. Everybody, welcome back. I am honored today to be joined by Associate Professor of Journalism, Media Analytics, and Interactive Media at Elon University. She's an author. She's written Detecting Deception, Tools to Fight Fake News. And her newest book is called We Are Hashtag AltGov, Social Media Resistance from the Inside. Please welcome Amanda Sturgill. Hi, I'm glad to be here. I am so excited to talk to you about this book because we all spend a lot of time on Twitter. I think Twitter kind of exploded after the 2016 election, and there were so many alt-gov accounts out there. And just in the first, gosh, few pages of this book, you go through all of them. I think the first, yeah, 10 right there in the intro, all of these alt-gov accounts, which I have had personal interactions with. I've had alt-NASA on my show before. There was an alt-VBA, a Veterans Benefits Administration, who actually I reached out to when I was trying to get my PTSD claim adjudicated through the VA and who helped me considerably in that Mm. pursuit. And I worked at VA forever. I was kind of an honorary alt VA account for quite a while there. Angry staffer. I mean, there's just so many great alt gov Twitter accounts. Can you talk a little bit about what prompted you to write this book? So I actually saw the very first alt-gov account tweets, right? The ones that came from the national parks right around the inauguration. And I saw the response to them, which was mountainous starting from you know just a few accounts to you know dozens coming online within just a few days and then their followers were growing very very quickly you know hundreds of thousands per day mm-hmm. for some of the accounts and it really just suggested to me as someone who researches new technologies and who researches you know social movements online and those kinds of things that this was something that was really resonating with people so i wanted to find out more about what it was about yeah and i think that you know we are now hearing all sorts of stories come out from folks way up in the administration, on the inside, like Jeffrey Berman at the Southern District of New York, the U.S. attorney, Miles Taylor, 
the anonymous book, nom de, you know, the person who wrote the anonymous book about what was going on in the White House, John Kelly, General Milley. But there was a whole army of, you know, middle executive, low executive, frontline employees working in the federal government, in the executive branch specifically, during the, the Trump administration, who were seeing very practical applications of policy within their agencies being thrown aside. I remember there being a when I was working at the Department of Veterans Affairs, there was an initiative to just get rid of three out of every five you know, regulations that you had. And, you know, we're sitting there like, this is healthcare. How can we, what do we, should we stop washing the tools? Like, what do you, <laughs> like, how, what are you talking about? Just get rid of three of five. And he, remember, he came out with that giant stack of paper and then like cut it down to a smaller stack of paper. It was the most ridiculous thing. And all the government employees are sitting there like, that's against the paperless rule that we have in the federal government. But as I'm going through this book, I'm, I'm noticing that this resistance from within the federal government was a lot bigger than I think a lot of people realize, especially if you're not like on Twitter following or being exposed to some of these accounts. What did you find about the expanse, the breadth and the depth of this uh, resistance within the government itself? I think that for a lot of people, it started from a position of uncertainty. Um, when I started in kind of the first chapters about talking about the transition, right, usually transition was a very organized thing that was planned for pretty far in advance. And when the Trump administration was first elected, it was the silence that was concerning, that they were expecting people to come up, you know, and be briefed on things and have people who were moving into slots and just nothing was happening. And that was coming after a period of fear, kind of between the election and the inauguration, that there was going to be really bad things that would happen with science data. I know when you had Rogue NASA on several years ago, they talked about that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And and I noticed it within the Department of Veterans Affairs itself. We, you know, we had a lot of new the only policies that were new that were came down were, like I said, that, you know, get rid of some of your policies and regulations. But also they amended the Hatch Act to include specifically no talking bad about Trump. You can't use the word resistance. You can't do this. There's a whole new social media Hatch Act proponent component that came down. We're all sort of sitting around looking at each other like you don't have to do this. The Hatch Act says I can't talk negatively or, you know, oppose or or work for or fundraise for any political candidate. We don't have to add your name. Uh, you you are a political candidate and and we all know Trump filed to run for president again the day he took office in 2017. So he was a protected candidate under the Hatch Act. What did you learn when you when you were kind of going through this about how people felt, I mean, you know, like you said, concerned about where's the transition information, but also concerned about loyalties and political affiliations. Yeah, absolutely. So one thing that I heard multiple times from multiple accounts was the fact that when you're a federal government employee, the president is not at the top of your organizational chart, right? It's the constitution that's at the top of your organizational chart. And so you know, we can describe it as a resistance, but in a lot of ways, it was more just trying to hold things together and do what their job actually was when they were being asked to do things that were maybe counter to that at work. And did you notice or did anybody talk about a brain drain or a talent drain? Because I know a lot of people kind of just tried to hold on, but a lot of people were driven out of their positions. You know, I'm thinking of the secretary of the VA, Shulkin, you know, myself, I was driven out. When I talked to some of these uh, secretaries of agencies, interviewed for them for the program, 
They were very concerned about the talent drain. Everybody was sort of leaving or being driven out by fear of, you know, not being loyal. And and I think that that had a lot to do with why the identities of a lot of these alt-gov accounts were kept so, you know, so private and so secure. Yeah. And that was actually, I have a kind of an agreement with them that was a part of my university research ethics protocols that said that I was not going to, you know, try to find out who they were because of the need to protect them. We had cases, some of them were actually asked at work to investigate and find out who their account was, <laughs> which was a little awkward. And um, oh, no. yeah, and there was really kind of a big turning point at the point when the government subpoenaed Twitter to try to get the identity for the alt-immigration account. Mm-hmm. And that was you know, like a giant bucket of cold water in the face for a lot of people and did make some people think, you know, do I want to continue to work here? Can I do more by staying in my job or can I you know, ethically stay here after I do that? Um, there was concern all over with that. And in fact, one of the things that you would see is, although there was a large number of different agencies and departments that were represented in accounts that came online, maybe the first three months of 2017, a lot of those kind of faded away and went silent before the end of 2017. And we didn't see anything like this under any other president, have we? Not that I know of, no. I mean, so somewhat social media is a little bit different now. But as a journalism faculty member, you know, one of the things I noticed is how leaky the Trump administration was. There's always leaks, right? And that's kind of the way that things get played. But this was way over the top when you would have, you know, major news outlets saying, you know, we verified this story with 30 different sources, right? 30 different anonymous sources. Yeah, there was a lot of warring factions within the administration. There was not any trust. It was run in a very different way from a lot of administrations, most other administrations. I, You know, I've only had a few since <laughs> I was born in 1974. But, you know, it's it's always sort of been like the transition from one president to another, whether that's your guy or not, whether you voted for him or not. It's like, all right, well, let's roll up our sleeves and get dig into the transition and find out what our new marching orders are. And it was never, you know as sinister or weird as it turned out to be in the Trump administration in 2017, it, it got weird and dark. And it was it was definitely different from any other presidential transition I had seen. Definitely a culture of fear was the way that it was described to me. Yeah. The one thing I was wondering is what was the crossover of alt-gov accounts and, and whistleblowing? Did you see any of that? I noticed that, uh, you know, at least in my agency, the the whistleblower's protection office was gutted and you didn't want to blow the whistle because they used it to go after people who who were not loyal it wasn't used how it was supposed to be used to actually root out fraud waste and abuse right so really a lot of what the alcove was about was about sharing information and they were pretty careful you mentioned the hatch act before And they were very careful not to violate the Hatch Act by not using government equipment, not using government Wi-Fi, not using government time, any of those kind of things for any of their ALCOV activities, but also in the content of the things that they shared. So trying to share information that is not secret information, it's nothing that it would be wrong for anybody to know about. It's just the kind of thing that in a very huge, complex bureaucracy. There's a lot of stuff people just aren't going to know about, right? Because reporters don't think to ask. Mm -hmm. So just kind of surfacing the things like, you might want to ask about this. And so you did see some cases where they were doing things like going to particular reporters who covered the area that they worked in and saying, hey, you might want to know that we're talking about this. You know, you might want to ask somebody up the chain from me about this, Mm -hmm. those kind of things. 
Yeah, I think that that's fascinating. I remember actually hiring a lawyer that specialized in the Hatch Act when I started the podcast, you know, and they're like, don't even toe the line, only work on your podcast at night and on the weekends. Even if you're on leave, the leave that you earned, don't work on anything, don't tweet, don't do anything during business hours if you were like as if you were at work. And and when they ended up investigating me and my podcast, they wanted, I could tell they wanted to fire me for cause, but because I had done everything properly. They couldn't really find anything. It made it made their life uh, a little more difficult to to actually weed out a lot uh, myself and a lot of these folks. So I'm I just find it so fascinating these career professionals who have dedicated their lives to public service being targeted. Yeah, absolutely. And one of the things that I thought was really kind of interesting is that most of the accounts that I interviewed started kind of on the conservative side of the aisle before the administration and really changed over the course of that. I think a lot of people you've thought about, you know, government resistance would think that was, you know, raging liberals, but that really wasn't the case at all. It was personally, I would lean toward a conservative side, but at work, I just do my job kind of thing was usually their attitude. You know, I can work with whoever because my job is not to support one side or the other. It's to work for the American people. Yeah. Yeah. I'd follow the agency mission, you know. Finally, before I let you go, what was one of the more surprising stories or shocking stories? What what's has stuck with you from all this research that you did with the AltGov accounts? I think the thing that stuck with me the most was kind of where I ended up at the conclusion of the whole process, which was that this wasn't just a story about the AltGov. It was a story about how we kind of do America now in uh, the age of online technology. So you saw the people who ran these accounts. None of them, if you saw their name, would you recognize it? Right. They're not at the top of the agency. They're not, you know, an elected official, any of those kinds of things. And they ended up taking this group of followers that they had and really empowering those people. We did a little informal survey of their followers. One of the accounts did that for me. And the thing that came out the most was that following the AltGov gave the followers hope and inspired them to be the ones who did the acting. By the time we got to kind of the end of the story, right? And so the end of the story in the book was COVID. And the handling of COVID, a lot of the AltGov accounts couldn't really be directly involved in anything with that because the administration was kind of falling apart at that point. A lot of people were leaving and their jobs just got really, really hard. And it was their followers who took over and uh, created the whole campaign and everything that they did around that. So I really just see it as an American story. Yeah. And I think one of the most striking moments for me as the host of the Mueller She Wrote podcast was that uh, some of these AltGov accounts had their hands in exposing a big Russian troll account to the Tennessee GOP, T-E-N underscore GOP, that ended up being in the Mueller report. Right. Talk a little bit about that story. That's fascinating. Yeah. So that was an interesting story. So that was actually the Alt Cyber Command account. And so that account holder was noticing a smaller account, very small Twitter account, that had found out that you could do a password recall and it would put in the phone number that was used to um, create the account and that the phone number was actually a Russian phone number, right? And so the account that the uh, alt followed, that uh, Cyber followed, was um, not going to make any kind of impact anywhere. And so Cyber wanted to get it out in front of people. So what they did was they actually they shared that information with their um, senator, but also shared that information with some really influential online accounts trying to get a lot of publicity and notice for that. And so I think that's what got it kind of in front of the DOJ to go look into that one. But yeah, 10GOP was a major player. 
in 2017. It's pretty incredible. It's pretty incredible. These are just honestly true patriots. Like you said, some were conservative, some were liberal, but really just dedicated, took an oath to the Constitution. We all did as executive branch employees, and, and they upheld that. And I thank you so much for going into this and researching all this. The book is called We Are Hashtag AltGov, Social Media Resistance from the Inside. It's by Amanda Sturgill. And I really appreciate your time talking to me today about this really incredible book. Thank you. It was a pleasure. Everybody stick around. We'll be right back with the good news. Hey, everybody, let's talk about something I use literally every day. I started taking AG1 by Athletic Greens because I wanted more energy and I wanted to optimize my immune system, especially with Omicron floating around out there, which is one delicious scoop of Athletic Greens. You absorb 75 high-quality vitamins, minerals, whole food source superfoods, probiotics, and adaptogens to help you start your day right. This special blend of ingredients supports your gut health, your nervous system, aging, focus, recovery, energy, your immune system, everything. It's, it's got everything in it. And I no longer have to buy 20 different bottles of probiotics and pills and vitamins and multivitamins and hair. And it's all in there. And we want to thank Athletic Greens for their support. Right now, they're offering you a free one-year supply of immune-supporting vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase when you go to athleticgreens.com slash dailybeans. I take mine first thing every morning, one delicious scoop in some water. It kickstarts my day. Athletic Greens is very lifestyle-friendly. Whether you're keto, paleo, vegan, dairy-free, or gluten-free, it's good to go. And it has less than one gram of sugar, no GMOs, no chemicals, no artificial anything. Plus, it's far less expensive than buying all those individual supplements, so you save money and time. And right now, it's time to reclaim your health and arm your immune system with convenient daily nutrition. It's just one scoop and a cup of water every day. That's it. No need for those million different pills and supplements. And to make it easy, Athletic Greens is going to give you a free one-year supply of immune-supporting vitamin D plus five free travel packs with your first purchase. All you have to do is visit athleticgreens.com slash dailybeans. Again, that's athleticgreens.com slash dailybeans to take ownership over your health and pick up the ultimate daily nutritional insurance. Everybody, welcome back. It's time for the good news. Who likes good news, everyone? Good news, good news. And if you have any good news, confessions, corrections, pod pet picks, anything you want to send to your happy place, shout out to somebody you love in your life, adoptable pets in your area, Halloween photos, Christmas photos. I love Christmas. Fourth quarter is the best for holidays, Q4, I got to say. You can send everything to us by going to dailybeanspod.com and clicking on contact. You know, before I dive in here, I just want to remind everyone again check your voter registration right now. How to dot vote. Get all your voting info in your state and make sure you bring some folks with you. First up from Scarecrow, pronouns he and him. Hello, Beans team. I love being able to use this podcast as a news source to the ignorant or misled folks. I have a lot of positive interactions due to this. I work at a small historic amusement park for Halloween. Our opening weekend was marred by some jagoff sneaking a gun into the park and shooting three people. Good news is that no one was seriously injured. The park upgraded its already excellent security. The gun was probably thrown over a fence instead of coming through a gate. And they hired mental health guides to talk to any team member that asked for help. We're okay. Our beloved park helped us out. And we're ready to keep going. I've worked here for 14 seasons. I've created and worn 20 plus characters. One of my favorites is Pumpkin King, an eight foot tall, 56 pound monster. Here he is with Giotto Amji, Ma Petite from American Horror Story. And Ron Perlman who is shorter than expected. <laughs> I love Ron Perlman. I got to meet him. I used to send photos of my chickens, but last year I went from 42 to one. 
Raccoons and coyotes and hawks wiped out my flock. I only have Helen left. She was attacked and blinded by a raccoon three years ago. She still lays a few good eggs a week and seems content. Thank you for the news. I love being updated while I'm working without having to listen to the radio. I'm so sorry about your chickens, scarecrow. Oh, look at this. These are wonderful. (laughs) Yeah, there's Ron Perlman. An American Horror Story. Awesome. Incredible. Thank you for that. And again, I'm so sorry about your chickens. I love chickens. Next up, we have April, pronouns she and her. Hello, Benevolent Beans Queens. I just became a patron so that I can partake in more of your greatness. Thank you, April. Thank you. You make, it's our patrons who make this show possible, seriously. My partner, Sandy, and I have six dachshunds and one doxy poodle. Most of them are rescues. We love creating Halloween costumes for them. Here are two. Okay, you've got animals in Halloween costumes. That's awesome. Send them to me, everyone. Again, dailybeanspod.com. Click on contact. Here are two we've been winning awards with at Oktoberfests and pet events. We live in Northeastern Ohio, not far from where AG is from. Oh, I'll be there. April, now that you're a patron, we have a meetup for patrons in Cleveland on Saturday, October 8th, tomorrow at 5 p.m. So check that out if you're into it. So Count Docula and a 15-year-old Anastasia. She loves to ride around in the coffin that Sandy built completely from scratch. Professor... Trapani is the 13-year-old Dappledoodle. The costume is a parody of Professor Trelawney, the divinity professor from Harry Potter. Okay, I hope I'm saying that right. This set is complete with the glowing crystal ball, tea leaves, spell books, and Professor Trelawney's wild red hair and big round glasses. Dappledoodle puts up with all of it and doesn't mind posing for pictures for all of her admirers. We're hoping to meet AG when she comes to Cleveland. There you go, April. There you go. Kudos to the whole team who make this necessary show happen. (gasps) My God, look at Count Docula. Look at that. It's a little coffin on wheels. And oh, there she is. You know, that's outstanding. That is an outstanding costume. And that little uh, spooky spells. I have that. I have that little thing. I, I bought it for my Hocus Pocus 2 party that we had the other day. Oh my gosh, these are great costumes. Congratulations on winning awards because you deserve it. Next up from Anonymous, hello, Beans Queens. I'm a new listener and I'm glad to have found my way to the legumity. (laughs) I just want to share the possible future that will be my happy thought for the next few weeks until the Supreme Court makes a decision about Trump's appeal of the 11th Circuit stay. In my fantasy future, SCOTUS will look at Cannon's amendment of her ruling, where she exercised the classified documents in question from the special master preview and declare Trump's appeal moot. I thought about this too, Anonymous. Like, she already pulled those out of her order, right? She amended it. And I was thinking about that too. But everyone keeps telling me, ah, if they rule in her favor, she'll just put them back in. I was like, I don't know if they can do that. Anyway, we'll see. I like your fantasy. I like where this, these, this beans is going, where these beans are going. So the tweets from the Orange Menace uh, on his social media platform about how disloyal and ungrateful his justices are will be a sight to behold. Yes. But beyond that, in this fantasy future, Trump will attempt to pressure Cannon into amending her order yet again to put the classified documents back in so he can reappeal. Cannon will find herself in the awkward position of either embarrassingly reversing her reversal of herself and opening herself up to an uncomfortable SCOTUS result when they side with the 11th Circuit against her. Or... She has to, for once, say no to Trump, in which case she can count on being at the unhappy end of caustic truths instead of truths. I like that herself. 
my apologies if it's beneath the Illuminati. No, no, justice porn is never beneath us. One finds joy where one can in these troubled times. Well, shucks, maybe I should have just tagged this as a confession instead of good news. Attaches my pet tax, Archie, is a former feral. He's very shy with strangers, but totally in love with his people. Look at how beautiful. I love what he's sitting on, too. I like that pattern and that color. So it's a white cat with these beautiful green eyes. And this awesome aqua looks like almost a floral point. I love it. Next up from Anonymous, pronoun she and they. Yesterday, I counted my eighth year being divorced from my abusive ex-husband. As a listener since the kitchen table days, thank you for being one of the things to get me through the rebuilding days. Oh, Anonymous, I'm so with you. I've been rebuilding now for... When did it, when was he arrested? Christmas of 2019. Next up from Birch, pronoun she and her. Hello, Beans Queens. Thank you for being you. I'm grateful to you for your diligence, perspective, stamina, clarity of moral compass, and for keeping me informed. I write today to share a misheard movie quote that was charmingly blurted by my loquacious and lispy four-year-old Helen. (laughs) One of Helen's toys told another toy in a growly voice, you are the diamond in the rump. (laughs) (laughs) which led to a tearfully giggly explanation by me about the phrase diamond in the rough and what a rump is. But I did not need to explain why diamonds in your rump is funny. It reminds me, Birch, of the the, uh, quote from Ferris Bueller's Day Off. He's so tense. If you put a lump of coal up his ass in two weeks, you would have a diamond. For pet tax, I've included a photo of American bulldog Magua, He's a clown and an excellent playmate for my children. In the second photo, you can see he has brought a tiger print octopus in the pop-up spaceship tent to play with my little kids, who, when combined, weigh less than he does. Keep up the good work, you geniuses. We stay-at-home moms in rural America need you. Birch, thank you so much. That means so much. Look at this papa. Oh, my goodness. Look at the hefty boy. What is this dog's name? Magua. American Bulldog. (laughs) He's so cool. What a handsome fellow. I like his jowlies. Thank you so much for sending all of these in. Again, if you have pets in costumes, that's like extra points. And anything else you want to send in, good news stories, you want to give a shout out to somebody you love and care about that means a lot to you, you can send everything to us by going to dailybeanspod.com and clicking on contact. Again, a reminder for patrons, meet up in Cleveland, downtown, It'll be uh, tomorrow night, October 8th, 5 p.m. It was 6 p.m., but I had to move it back to 5 p.m. because I'll be doing a dinner with the fam right after. Anyway, it's been wonderful. I've had a wonderful week. It's been a lot of news. And thank you for listening. Seriously. I'll be back Sunday. Dana will be back. Or excuse me, I'll be back Monday. (laughs) We record on Sunday. Dana will be back Tuesday morning. Until then, please take care of yourselves. Take care of each other. Take care of the planet. Take care of your mental health. Vote blue over Q and bring someone with you. I've been AG and them's the beans. The Daily Beans is written and executive produced by Allison Gill with additional research and reporting by Dana Goldberg and Amy Carrero. Sound design and editing is by Desiree McFarlane with art and web design by Joel Reeder with Moxie Design Studios. Music for The Daily Beans is written and performed by They Might Be Giants and the show is a proud member of the MSW Media Network, a collection of creator-owned podcasts dedicated to news, politics, and justice. For more information, please visit mswmedia.com. MSW Media. <laughs>